Welcome to episode 24 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. And I am your host, Mandy Conant, except that I'm your co-host. And... <laughs> Before we get started today, we want to remind you guys that APW is still coming up. You need to buy tickets. June 7th through the 9th. Go to atlantapollyweekend.com or search us on Facebook and you can get the link there. It's going to be amazing. We're going to do actually a live Probably Polly podcast at Atlanta Polly Weekend. So we'd love for you to come and join us and ask us questions and interact with at least two of us. Yes, that would be great. We would like if you guys would come out. (laughs) That would be fun. I'm very excited to see some people. I've already had at least two people contact me through Facebook or the site and say they're going to be there and they're going to see us at APW. So that's exciting for us. Other big, big news. We finally launched our website. So probablypolly.com is now a place that you can go. Yes. For right now, it mostly just has a little bit about us that you've already heard if you listen to the podcast and also links to the podcasts that are out. So it's not amazingly distinct from SoundCloud. But we're going to keep building it. We're going to keep adding things to it. We're going to try and start adding additional content, some written content. I don't know what else we can come up with. But if you have ideas for cool things you'd like to see on the website, let us know. If there's things like features you'd be excited to see, let us know. And you can contact us um, at our email addresses through the website. Right. We now have individual email addresses. You can reach the specific person you wanted to reach. And it's just our first name, Mm -hmm. Michael. At probablypolly.com. Or Mandy, M-A-N-D-E-E. Or Sarah with an H at the end. With an H. (laughs) At probablypolly.com. Yeah. Super fun and easy. We're very excited. All right. News on Franklin. Yes, it is time to do another news on Franklin update. So as always, all of the links we mention will end up in the description. Right. Because in the last episode, almost every time I'd mention a link, someone would go, we're going to post that, right? And I'm like, yes, we're going to. So we're just, we're going to post all of them. <laughs> we don't. All of them. If I mention it, it's getting posted. So the Survivor Pod posted a article titled March Updates. It uh, talks about new reports. So obviously now that this has gone public and they've asked for people to call in and say, did you have these experiences? What are your survivor stories? Please share your survivor stories. Yeah. They have heard from, quote, numerous additional women who have experienced the harmful behaviors from Franklin described in our post. Okay, so this is weird language from them. And I guess it's because they don't 100% know what's going on. But the next big bullet point is contact from Franklin's pod. It says... The survivor advocacy received communication on March 2 from an individual representing themselves as part of that pod. And that makes sense because I haven't seen anything posted anywhere from that pod either. So it doesn't. So we know at least one person is claiming to be part of that pod and contacting them. They said they provided that individual with a more detailed list of the harmful behavior reported. By the way, that's the thing we're going to spend a lot of time on today. I'm trying to get through the rest of this fast because they put out a document that actually lists the behaviors they're concerned about. Oh, that's... And that's the thing that we keep going. What's the behaviors? What are they saying is happening? They added a PayPal pool so that if you want to donate to this cause, you can. One of their members of the Survivor Pod has left the survivor pod to do some accountability work of their own. So there's a little bit of a clarification of what is a pod because a lot of people don't know, us included. Right. So we posted on our Facebook page incorrectly that Eve was a member of the pod because we thought pod referenced the survivor group. And that is completely wrong. We were informed by the actual survivor pod, which is the group representing the survival group. So it's a group of people who are working together to help the survivors. In the podcast, if you listen closely, I say it right through the miracles of editing because I went through and like chopped up and reused words, but it's very choppy. I'm like, a survivor pod is the (laughs) people helping. So like, if you pay close attention, you'll, you'll realize that that's... That is not what we recorded. When we recorded it, we were like, Eve's on the survivor pod. Wrong. So there's a whole section on what is a pod here, which I'm not going to get into too much because, again, I have a, a primary agenda and this is just an update. But also, we have been told that later in April, we're going to have a representative from the survivor pod on the show to talk about the pods and the transformative justice process that they're engaged in. And this person is from the survivor pod? Yes. This is... Samantha Manowitz, and they are the therapist associated with the pod, or at least one of the therapists. I don't know if there's multiple therapists, but it is a therapist 
associated with the pod. So we're going to leave that for the whole show where we can do it well with someone who actually knows what they're talking about. And of course, that's one of the things they're working on because then the last post is about misconceptions about their intentions and processes. And they're saying that people say, oh, this is a restorative justice process. As we know from the post that Franklin posted, he said that it's about some abusive ex trying to get back mm-hmm. in his life. And they just want to clarify that nobody wants contact with Franklin in the survivor group. Nobody's asked for that. And then it's not a restorative justice process, which if you're not familiar with the different types of justice, restorative justice is the one that says you can gain justice by giving back what was taken. Right. So if you can make up for it. Right. You're getting back to, to what it was. Or closer to that state. Sort of give give back some amount of what's been taken. And of course, that's not the goal here. You can't really get someone back to a pre-abused state. The goal is what's called transformative justice, which is about change. increasing the quality of the situation going forward, creating change, creating motion in the right direction in the in the larger community. But again, we'll I think we'll talk more about that in, in that next one. So let's go on to the... The accusations. The list of harms, yeah. yeah. Dishonesty. Agreeing to do things and then denying it later, or agreeing in slippery passive ways that could later be reframed or denied, withholding information from partners that is material to their ability to consent to ongoing relationships with him or to make informed decisions about their own lives. So we talked about that in our robust notion of consent, that you have to give people any information they could potentially need. Correct. So just not giving information, even if it wasn't asked for, if you think that it would be important to that decision-making process. You ethically should give them that information. That's right. It's un- under underlying their consent and moving towards the direction of coercive consent. That's right. Presenting false information to partners that confuses or destabilizes them or creates conflict with his other partners and then denying all of the above. So again, by the way, these are accusations. I just want to clarify that when reading these, we're not saying here are the things that this person did. These are the, yeah, the harms that the survivors are listing that they have accused Franklin of. And our default position is we believe the survivors, and we believe it's even possible that he doesn't know that he did that, as again, we stated before. But we just want to make it clear that we're not saying that this is something that 100% happened as written. Which I think happens a lot. You don't know you're doing something wrong until somebody lets you know a lot of times. Well, and that's why this is such a good process. It's not like they're trying to take anyone to the cleaners. They're not trying to destroy his career. They've been very clear about that. They just want to be heard. Well, they want him to be a better person. I guess that I was summarizing how I interpreted what they might think the solution was. Because the claim was that when you tried to tell Franklin, he wouldn't listen. Right. And so that's what I mean by being heard is actually hear and understand that these are legitimate concerns and not just blow them off. But you are are correct. They actually want to get him yeah. to stop doing these behaviors. Because you can hear and understand something that you're doing wrong, but <laughs> changing it is a whole other story. Gaslighting and verbal abuse. So misdirecting from the validity of a partner's discomfort at mistreatment from him, usually by directing blame to something internal to the partner, such as insecurity, jealousy, or mental illness. Redefining his partner's own statements of their experiences and feelings, and categorizing these in a way that denies their reality but affirms his worldview. Belittling and shaming his partners, and weaponizing vulnerabilities they reveal to him in trust. Systematically undermining his partner's sense of self and confidence in their own perceptions. Exploitation. Depending on partners financially or in other material ways while contributing little and breaking commitments to reciprocate. Using ideas originated by partners in his own blog posts, interviews, and revenue-generating publications without permission, credit, or compensation. Representing his relationships for use in online and print publication as a part of his public persona without acquiring or addressing the perspectives of his partners in equitable ways. Grooming significantly younger, less experienced, or vulnerable women for exploitative relationships. Triangulation. Giving conflicting accounts of the same events to different partners and giving conflicting accounts in public versus in private. Telling each partner secrets about other partners in a way that sows conflict and increases isolation. Misrepresenting his partner's feelings, needs, actions, and intentions to his other partners and in public. Refusing to set boundaries or make choices, and then letting his partners absorb the fallout while he claims helplessness. Sexual coercion. Involving women in coercive group sex and other coercive sexual experiences. Oh, wow. Sometimes then recharacterizing their consequent distress as something that is wrong with them or something that is being done to him. Involving less experienced partners in BDSM and other high-risk sexual activities without appropriate discussion of risk or consent. Mm. And then finally, rejecting accountability. 
attributing legitimate concerns or grievances to mental illness, irrationality, or malice, admitting to lesser abstract faults to deflect conversation away from specific harmful acts, redirecting the conversation when the partner tries to name harm, blaming a different partner for his actions, claiming that his behavior is something he had to do, or that his partner deserved because of something she did, cutting off and discrediting friends, partners, social groups, and communities who attempt to name his harmful behaviors. So I apologize if reading that was long. I normally try not to directly read whole articles, but I felt like that was important. I could not paraphrase, yeah. and it was important to know. I, no, I don't think you cannot paraphrase. Yeah, like that's not. You have to directly quote that. That that's some heavy shit. Like that's some serious abuse. Yeah. Like that's like everything besides hitting someone. Like that's sure. <laughs> Like, that runs the gambit. Yeah, that's everything short of direct or implied physical abuse. Yeah. Like, that's just crazy. I mean, it's not crazy. I, like, yeah. I'm at a loss for words, to be completely honest. Like, I just, I, wow. I, I think that's exactly what I thought it would be, given the rest of the context and the stories we read in the I original. Didn't, oh, I didn't think it was going to be so much. And hooray to the survivors for being so detailed, because I think that that's important for, for other survivors to be given that language, mm -hmm. because, because a lot of survivors don't know how to articulate what is being done to them. So hooray to them for, for providing that language. Well, and as we've said many, many times, words are so unclear. Mm -hmm. The reason I had to read the whole thing and not just the bullet points is you just write you know, coercive sex. And that, what does that mean? That's a whole range of possible options. So then being able to read out all the extra descriptions narrows us in on what the, the group is actually talking about. Right. And that's very, very important if you're trying to show someone the types of harms they're engaging in so that they can not do those harms. And also if you're trying to show the community what harms the community is allowing people to engage in. You have to be explicit as possible. Like you have to be as detailed as possible for sure. Right. Because what will happen is you'll say, well, they did this and the community will go, oh, well, we would have never allowed that. But if you get really specific and say, this is the, the exact thing that happened and they go, okay, well, I did actually see that happen. Right. Then it's less wiggle room. Mm -hmm. like, well, I didn't see any coercive sex. Okay. Well, here's what I mean by that. Okay. Well, I saw that. Right. You know, it's really important to get as much detail as you can, I think, when you're doing that kind of descriptive work. It, to be honest, it's more. It's more than I thought it was going to be. See, I'm so surprised at how surprised everyone is. I keep reading these articles, people going, oh, this changes my whole life. And I'm going, why? Because we know that the poly community has a well-documented history of homophobia, preference for cis, heteronormative, white, male, straight, unless you're a bi woman, mm -hmm. that we have significant issues around all of those things. You think that we have that much abusive behavior going on, but not the other stuff, though. Right. right. Like we're allowing these tons of abuses in our community. And where are they coming from? Of course, they come from both the community, but mostly the leadership, not the leadership's doing them, but the leadership tolerates them. Yeah. That you in a leadership position can make the kind of motions to avoid those things if you really want to. And that's not the push that people in leadership are making. Generally, you talk to people and their general sense is, OK, well, we're trying to make a community that makes the people in our community happier. But the people in our community are those groups, right. those problematic groups. So, of course, you've got problematic behavior and the fact that you think okay well these people are doing all of these problematic behaviors they're supporting all of these problematic behaviors oh but i'm sure not gaslighting right <laughs> what like of course they are you need those tools those are the tools that allow you to do those other abuses those tools weren't there those abuses wouldn't be happening how can you tell people oh our community is inclusive with a well-documented history of homophobia if you're not gaslighting right but like the, the gaslighting to me is not the surprise. The gaslighting, sure. I completely called that. Like that's, yeah. yeah. It's the sexual co coercion and like the BDSM lack of safety concern and like just. One, those are so hard though, again, because think about the language there without appropriate discussion of risk or consent. But here the survivors are saying it wasn't appropriate, mm -hmm. but it might have been up to the community standard in the area that they were practicing in, which might be all that Franklin had to go on if he's not an expert in those standards, which, you know, one of the things that the accountability pod is calling for is having experts be your experts. Right. And that goes back to the original, maybe he doesn't know he has problems, but he also is confrontation shy. So when you come back after the event and go, I felt coerced, he 
to save his own self-image, says, no, 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 you weren't coerced. I did the right things. I did all the things that are in this form. I did all the things that I was told to do. So if you feel coerced, that's on you. Because he didn't want to see himself as coercive. Right. Right. I was reading this really fascinating study about poly people around jealousy. And this will apply to everything, but it's it's the study was about jealousy. It was about how if you are polyamorous... Part of what will make jealousy worse for you is if there's a difference between how you view your relationship to jealousy and how your relationship to jealousy is reflected back to you by your partners and your community. So in the language we've been using, that's going to be a disconnect for your sense of self or your being for itself, and then the reflected being that being for others. And when there's a gap between the way that you are trying to live for yourself and the way that people reflect back to you, it causes significant cognitive discomfort. This is a problem around, for instance, like the compersion issue, because we tell everybody you're supposed to have conversion. This is one thing that we on the podcast are generally against. Not everyone's going to have conversion. That's right. not a thing you have to have. It's not a requirement. But it's a big problem in the community that people feel like you have to have that, that not being, not feeling jealous is a you're virtue, doing something wrong which is ridiculous. Yeah. Correct. So what happens is people build up a sense of themselves as, for instance, I'm a really good poly person. I'm a poly expert. I might be the top of my field, for instance, out of nowhere I pulled that example. And then someone says, you're being really jealous. And they go, well, that can't be true because then I would not be this amazing guru. Right, because I poly right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so then they have to go, well, that can't be true. So you must be wrong. Right. And they're, yeah. they're defending their sense of self from your reflection of them and that's hugely discomforting mm -hmm. and so the, you know, the final bullet point rejecting accountability in most cases that's what you're going to then see happen right they're going to find ways to reject accountability but not because they're worried about what you would do it's actually because they're worried about how they see themselves i mean sometimes it's worried about what you will do sometimes but i think a lot of it especially given the rest of the context we've had here about people saying i don't think he knows he's doing it i think is just he's very very uncomfortable realizing that he's the source of these harms right and so it's easier to just not think that you are and to avoid anybody who might make you feel those uncomfortable feelings than it is to take accountability for them and try and fix their source yeah it makes sense so no i mean this is this is more or less what i would have expected because these are all the kind of things that are just so easy to do look at the phrasing around dishonesty i mean yeah i'm i'm probably guilty of you know a huge percentage of that at one point or another but I think the biggest issue is that last bullet point is the right. the rejection of accountability. Well, that's what's brought us to here. Right. Because otherwise those behaviors could have been getting better this whole time and you'd have this picture of moving from problematic to less problematic, mm -hmm. which is in fact the image that he has cultivated for himself. Correct, yeah. Right, I have these bad behaviors and as I make the mistakes, I learn from them and I get better. And what we're hearing from the survivors is that their position is that he does make those mistakes, but the accusation is that he then does not get better and in fact attacks people who try and help him get better. Right. And alienates, isolates, and escapes from feedback that would help him improve those behaviors. What's really ironic is one of the classes that he does when he presents is how to screw up your relationships in poly. And that's paraphrased. That's not the exact class name, but it, it's like how to screw up a poly relationship, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And that's what he speaks about mm -hmm. is all the bad shit you can do if you want to screw up your relationship. Well, I think that one of those bullet points is something that we kind of wanted a lot to elaborate on tonight. The consent to use, what is it? The consent to use relationships as examples or... What we're talking about tonight, I would say, was not an individual bullet point, but shows up as a sub point on two or three of them, okay. which is a question about how you're allowed to use other people's experiences and stories, especially when those stories overlap with you. Right. So you both experience this story, but is it yours to share or is it theirs to keep private? So this this actually started as a listener question mm -hmm. on our Facebook page. One of our listeners, Norman Barth, wrote... Thank you, Norman. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're very excited. Because he actually wrote me back and clarified it. But I want to read the original one first and then the clarification. Because I think the original one is what both you and I were thinking about. And then the clarification is not, but is in the same ballpark <laughs> and is very useful. Okay. So he wrote, in response to your request for topics, I'd love to hear your thoughts about drawing a line between respecting someone's privacy versus being able to share one's own experiences. You touch on it in a recent episode, but I think that there's more detail that can be expressed. 
Turns out he was more right than he knew because Mandy and I both heard that and we thought about this context, this we're public speakers, we're partially public figures. I think we would definitely qualify as public figures legally. Like if someone wrote an article about us or took a photo or something, we probably wouldn't be able to say they can't because we have a podcast. We put ourselves out there, yeah. And so we were thinking things like, oh, I told a story about my ex-partner. Is that okay? Well, I also thought about, which I think is where he's going to go with this, is like between other relationships. Right. That's why I said what we're talking about is like different bullet points in what we just read. Because his question was actually more about something that more of our listeners probably actually experience. (laughs) Because obviously the question about where it's safe to use your stories for professional reasons is not one that most people have a problem with. But actually, specifically with other partners, if you go out and you have a great date talking about compersion and you want to come home and talk about the hot sex that you had so that your partner can have compersion that they're excited about, especially if your partner maybe has, say, a fetish for hearing about you being with other people Mm. or something like this then can you tell that story i mean it's your story you experienced it so in most contexts you would think you'd have that right but we all feel like there's something wrong there and so you want to get into sort of that that distinction and try and tease out where the difference between those two explanations come from. So I'm going to read his longer response. So I I told him we were going to use this question. And he said, ooh, let me, I don't remember where I posted that, which I had already had, but I didn't tell him. He said, I'll I'll write it again. And he wrote it much longer. It's like like three paragraphs now. (laughs) And of course, as we always say, more information is great because I was going the complete wrong direction because language is just not clear enough. You need a lot of clarifiers to help dial that in. So he wrote in the new one, we generally agree that it's okay to share our own experiences. So when I come home from a date, it's okay to tell my partner how the date went. If I were to tell you that I shared where we went or what was ordered or how the wait staff was, most people would think that was appropriate sharing. But if I were to tell my partner if I had sex with that other person, again, people, well, he says people would think that's appropriate sharing. And I think that gets into the I'm not sure if people would think that's appropriate sharing. They may or they may not. Yeah, I think that's a personal preference, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that one's a default one. I can talk about how the food tasted, about what my date thought about the food and such. No one will generally get upset about that. But if I were to share with my partner what the sex was like, folks will often start to say that I'm violating the right to privacy my date might be assuming. That it's inappropriate to share that without the date's overt consent. This is the context to me wondering where the line between my having the right to my experience Versus, versus the need to respect other people's privacy. Great question, Norman. That is a fantastic question. So the very, very short version, have a discussion about what you're allowed to yes. share, get consent, and use consent as your guide. If you do not do that for any number of reasons, like that just isn't what happened, or you did that, but you didn't think about one of the things that you want to talk about doesn't fall inside of the consent you describe one way or the other, and you're not sure... That's when we're going to get into more of the, what do we think those lines ought to be drawn. Right. I guess that's what we're going to talk about is where we think there's a healthy place to draw those lines. Because obviously what you really want is you want to have a conversation, which I, and I said this before, I do that really early on. Yes. Almost the first thing I say to people that I'm on a date with is, I want you to know I don't keep secrets. I tell literally everyone everything. I have no filter for any of the things that have happened to me. So if you want me to do anything more than literally no guarding of anything, you have to tell me what you want in that space. I'm very, very similar. And (laughs) yeah, uh, it's shocking that people who tell their stories for (laughs) a major part of their lives don't like remembering when they can't tell a story. But I'm really, I think I'm pretty good if you tell me not to tell a thing, not to tell a thing. And so I say, you know, early on, especially with my partner, because obviously I've been my partner for 11 years, we're very close, and we talk about a lot of things. So I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you, you know, like, I'm going to talk about this. But, you know, there there are things that even go weirdly beyond the things that you would talk about. And, like, context becomes important. So, for instance, even inside of that, if my partner starts asking me a lot of questions about the sexual stuff and is clearly getting arousal out of it, I will often stop. That is a hard no for me. I'll pull it. And what I'll I'll actually do is I'll pull it and go, let me ask them if this would be okay with them. And then after I've had that specific discussion, I can come back, you know, if it's something that's okay with both of the partners. Well, some people get off on the other person getting off on it. And then I'm like, whatever, everybody's having a great time here. That's just not a thing for me. I'm kind of wigged out by it. It's a hard no for me. For me. That doesn't sound like you're saying it's an ethical hard no so much as you just wouldn't want to engage in that because it creeps you out. It creeps me out. (laughs) I don't really care one way or another. That's not really my jam. Right. 
but I know that it is, yeah, is a big weird is. thing. Being cockled is an entire subsection of the... Huge, <laughs> huge subsection. Porn, yeah. a huge, not a subsection, it's one of the largest yeah. subsections in the porn industry. So obviously it's something that a lot of people enjoy. But my point is that that goes beyond communication into almost sexual exploitation. Right. So that's a really weird one is you're actually repackaging at that point. Right, you're using it for other purposes and that's not cool. Right, you're using the other person as mm-hmm. an object, basically. You're starting to objectify the other person yeah, and repackage yeah. them for the consumption of mm-hmm. your partner and that is interesting because even if i said i'm gonna do whatever i want with talking about you i would still feel like i needed specific consent for that yeah because that goes beyond simply relating that's not just sharing your story that's using the story right Right. And that's, of course, true in the professional context as well, which is we are very careful that the people who we don't have explicit consent for, at least I am, I think we all are, we don't use their names. So for me, the one thing that might happen is one of my ex-partners might hear my characterization of events and they might feel treated unfairly by it in some way or another and i've never i've not had any of my partners tell me that and i'm still at least in partial contact with all of the partners i've ever discussed on this show so i don't think that that's what's happening but i could understand if it did because we all have different perspectives and that's something that's always going to be true but i would never tell their explicit story as like a workshop no without going to talk to them about like i wouldn't focus like it's one thing to be like oh here's a one experience i had it's and not using their name and not getting into close details and not making them identifiable and it's totally different to say oh i'm gonna name this partner or i'm gonna tell the entire history of this partner from beginning to end as a single object that you can read about and make money off of and stuff I think when you repackage information to accomplish an end, you move beyond the question of just privacy and versus my own freedom of expression into objectification and consumption Mm -hmm. of a person's, of who they are. Right, you're using it. For your own enrichment. Professionally, as far as using my experiences with partners and their experiences with me if i don't have their consent i don't use any type of identifier sure and i think i've told the story on the podcast before about giving a class and having one of my ex-partners in the class Mm -hmm. and then realizing that i was talking about them Mm -hmm. and going oh my gosh like, this is me and and kind of freaking out a little bit. And afterwards, I was like, shit, I probably should have let you know that <laughs> that was part of that mm-hmm. class before you sat in on it. Because then you could have also said that you weren't going to do anything to identify them. So they didn't have to be sitting there going, am I suddenly going to get called out for this? Am I going to suddenly be known yeah, for this? Yeah, well, and once that partner actually realized... <laughs> Cause, cause he was like, oh, wow, this is intense. Wow. This sounds familiar. Wow. Oh shit. This was us. (laughs) So (laughs) like by the time he realized it was him and I, that we, that I was talking Mm -hmm. about, he knew that there was no, not going to be an identifier because it was so mm-hmm. unidentified nice. that it took him a minute to realize it was him. And and that's that's kind of how I do it in, in classes, you know, when I present and when I hold workshops and things. But when we do it on the podcast, I'm pretty candid about names mm-hmm. and stories. And then I kind of always give you the disclaimer at the end, like, hey, let me make sure with so-and-so that was cool to say before you edit it. And then, you know, through your magic of editing, you can fix my fuck ups. <laughs> so and I, I've certainly done some of that on the last episode. I called out some stuff that my mom believed and then was like, that might have been a bridge too far. I don't know if she wants people to know she believed right. that. And I called her and was like, is it okay if I say this? Right. And she was like, yeah, I think it's important for people to hear. It's a good part of their learning journey. It's a good part of my learning journey. And I was like, that's why I said it. But I wanted to make sure you felt comfortable yeah. with that being why I was saying it. If I use a story about my husband's, as soon as we're done, I'll go downstairs and go, hey, so I told this story and I told this story and I told this story. Is that cool? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Because if you know me and you're in a relationship with me, like you said about you, you're pretty like, you, you know that I'm an open book. And, and what, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I do with my life is that I share my stories and adventures in Polly mm-hmm. to help other people. Sure. So you pretty much know that your story with me might be shared at some point or another. And if you explicitly right. do not want it to be, you have to tell me. So. Mm-hmm. 
But what's important is that Mandy and I both have that conversation early and often. I, by the way, often is also yes. important. I have that conversation, but I don't think people always know what I mean. So I come back two to three dates later and ask again, <laughs> remind them what that kind of might mean, what that might look like, because we're all, and this is getting to be wonderful, but we're also getting really used to consent culture. So what we used to have, we used to have norm culture. Mm-hmm. And norm culture was like, here are the things that you are allowed to do. And that's actually what, ironically, Norman here is talking about, where he's saying, well, this is what people will consider okay, and this is what people will consider not okay. And what I would say is that these days, everybody has a different boundary, which is why both Mandy and I were like, I don't know if it's okay to say if you had or didn't have sex with a partner, if you haven't asked that partner if that's the kind of information that's okay to share with people. Right. And so consent is absolutely the best way to handle that, to start with, let's talk about what you think is an appropriate barrier for talking about things, what I think is an appropriate barrier for talking about things, and get consent for as much of the stuff that you want want to do or you think you might want to do is you can get on the table. If you've got one of those partners that loves to hear the stories for sexual interest, I would throw that out there when you're comfortable with it. I wouldn't do it on a first date because that might freak people out. But that's up to you. If you want to try and use it on a first date, go for it. But but if you haven't asked that, then don't do it. Don't go back after the first date and start yeah. doing details to, to your partner to get them excited if you haven't asked consent for that specifically. I highly discourage that. <laughs> highly discourage. <laughs> Well, it's just, it's it's unethical. That's all I am ever going to say about things like that is obviously I discourage you doing unethical things. That's bad. And if it comes out, obviously that'll be harmful. Then that poses the question. I know I have a few best friends that I just tell everything to. They are not partners, so to speak. They're not, Mm -hmm. you know, romantic partners, but I do tell them like everything. Mm -hmm. So I know that a lot of people will sometimes call one or multiple partners their best friend as well. Mm -hmm. So where's the line in telling your best girlfriend, like female Mm -hmm. that is a friend that the sex was amazing and we were in this position and you should try this position and telling your partner who you identify as your best friend the sexual positions you were in and what was good and what wasn't. Well, I'm going to go and say that there isn't really a distinction. The difference is just that the other person won't care. You violated consent either way because you didn't have it. You know, if you think that you're always allowed to carte blanche, tell your best friend everything that happens to you, no matter what it was and no matter what the other person feels like, you still violated that person's consent. It's just that they won't probably care if they find out that it was your best friend because it's something that and maybe they maybe they had consent by societal norm. Right. But maybe they didn't. And you don't know that because there are some people who don't want anything about their sexual experience shared because they're super shy about it. It's just that normally you don't see the downside to that because normally it doesn't come back to get people mad at you. Right. And of course, it's the kind of thing where you have like the best friend that's a black box or whatever you say, they never repeat. And so it never gets back to anybody. So you just don't ever get caught. So those kind of friends are just safer, (laughs) safer violations. Safer violations. They're not not violations. And so I want to say that I think even that's a good thing to ask, say, you know, and you can even say it like a boundary, right? You can say, I need to be able to discuss my experiences with at least one other person or I can't process them properly, which is how I am for sure. And I think Mandy's in that same ballpark. Yeah. And so I think it's not a problem to say, hey, I have one best friend who I discuss everything with to help me process. They don't ever repeat that information. You don't even know know which of my friends it is. You don't have to feel awkward around them. But if you're going to be dating me, I'm going to tell them those stories because I need to. Right. And that's a human need. Like, I think everyone will understand that. And if they don't, you probably don't want to be dating that person because a person that thinks you need to not to know one at all but them is trying to isolate you. Correct. Not necessarily intentionally. They don't necessarily know that's what they're doing, but they're using that strategy of trying to be your exclusive being for others. Yes. In the case of your relationships, that you don't want to do that anyway. And then I think it just comes down to what the other partner is comfortable with. So you ask like the difference between I have a best friend who I'm dating and a best friend I'm not dating. What's the difference? Why can I tell my not dating best friend? And the difference is in the way that the person you're dating will perceive that information. Because mm-hmm. it's a conflict of interest problem is really what it comes down to. Yeah. I and mean, I guess that's the difference between the best friend 
that you're not dating and the best friend that you are dating. It's the conflict of interest. But again, it just comes down to consent. So if that person doesn't care if you tell a partner that you're sleeping with what you did, that's fine. And if they care, if you tell somebody that you're not sleeping with, like maybe a specific somebody. So maybe not, you can't tell anybody, but I know your friend X and that person and I go way back and I wouldn't like them to know about me. I don't like them that much. Please don't tell them about me, you know, which could be a legitimate need on their part could be the thing that would upset them more than telling your partner that you might be having a relationship with because for them that's a bigger conflict or for them that's more important it's amazing how many problems just talking to each other so what communication and yet how hard it is (laughs) to do that communication is well our episode communication is hard (laughs) like i'm not communication isn't easy but it's just it's this one's almost entirely it's just you don't think you need consent to just decide what you should and shouldn't talk about and i think you just do yeah to be on the safe side. You just get consent for everything that you're going to talk about regarding that relationship. It happened with me when I was younger and my friends too. I know it happened to other people. You know, when I was in like elementary school, I'd have a boyfriend or middle school and have like a boyfriend, but we didn't want to tell anybody. Me and so-and-so were going out, but, but we don't want anybody to know. You know, but you would you would tell your bestie, of course, because she's the one that, mm-hmm. you know, got his number for you. And he kind of knows she knows because she got his number for you as well. So Right. But so, but I think it kind of goes back to that. You decided that neither of you wanted anybody to know. So this goes back to the kind of moment in history that we're at, because when you talk about things like rape culture and you talk about people saying things like in studies, large, scary percentages of men think that no means yes, Mm. you're going to get these kind of stories. Mm -hmm. We're not going to tell anyone means we're going to tell our best friends. It's culturally understood. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's okay. No, it's not okay. You violated consent. You shouldn't agree to that. But you were in middle school. So you were dumb. (laughs) That's fine. But the thing is... (laughs) As an adult, if you're both like, we're not going to tell anyone, and then you go tell your best friend, like, that's a consent violation. You should have learned better by now. And what you should have said is, we're not going to tell anybody but our one best friend that we're not dating because God knows we have to tell someone. We have to have that third person. Right. Like, you should have been an adult about it. You created an unrealistic expectation. Mm -hmm. It is not humanly possible to do that. Even therapists have a little clause in their contract that says they can talk to other therapists about your session so that they can have feedback. You wouldn't even want your therapist to not be able to do that. Like, to get locked (laughs) in a situation where they heard something from you that they didn't know what to do with it. And we're like, well... Guess I got to figure this out on my own. Like, that's not what you want. Yeah. You want them to be able to bounce that idea off of someone equally qualified to have that discussion. <laughs> Nobody who's, and you know about someone who's good at consent, 12 pages of explanation on how they're going to use your information of consent from a therapist, <laughs> right? Take a cue. Even they put in a little clause that was like, and sometimes I'm going to tell somebody because I need some feedback. Right. So that's fine to do. And if the other person goes, that's ridiculous, you can just look at them and go, you know you're going to do that anyway. Right. I mean, the difference here is whether or not we're being honest about it. Mm -hmm. Because if we both say we're never going to tell anyone X, we're definitely going to tell at least one person. Yeah. Was the old saw, right? Two people can keep a secret if one of them's dead. Correct. I mean, and I think even that's not actually true. I think actually two people can keep a secret if both of them are dead. (laughs) People, if that one person's alive... They're going to tell somebody because people are communal animals. Well, because the other person is dead and it doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) Well, it depends on what the secret is. I mean, the secret is like the two of you robbed a bank and then you murdered them. You probably shouldn't tell anyone, but you still will, which is how those people get dragged in all the time. They told one random person and that person was like, wait, what now? Mm -hmm. It's, It's just so hard to actually keep a secret that isn't literally life and death for yourself right and even if it is life and death for you it's really hard to keep that secret and humans reflect and refract our experiences through interactions with each other so if you go out and have the world's best date you want to go home and tell somebody maybe not your other partners because you've been asked not to but somebody Mm -hmm. and you're gonna do that you know everything on the list you're gonna do so be honest just tell someone you're gonna do do that if you're going to have that conversation and i think don't assume oh well i can tell them if we had sex can you why is that fair game automatically right you have words like this i'm not revealing anything inappropriate right well scare quote inappropriate what's inappropriate is based on what the other person feels is inappropriate (laughs) i think the better way to phrase that is 
what do you feel is inappropriate for me to share with other people? Right, right. Ask them, yeah. But I mean, like, if you're just assuming, you know, this is the same thing we talk about, that one of the things that we've said makes dating outside of the norm a little bit better than dating inside of the norm is that you don't assume the relationship structure. Right. That back when I was very first dating in a monogamous, normative, cis, heteronormative context, the belief was that, quote, everyone knew what just dating meant, what exclusive dating meant, what boyfriend, girlfriend meant, what fiance meant, what married meant. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was close to true in like the 50s when there was even a step called pinning that everyone knew about. There was a, a different kind of a community culture. And I shouldn't say it was true was true in mainstream white America. Correct, yeah. And that's the thing is, the reason that we're shifting from a normative culture to a consent culture is because it turns out normative culture only works by horribly predating everyone that doesn't feel comfortable in it. Mm -hmm. And that's not great. That's just ethically very terrible. You're privileging yourself and your comfort zone over everyone that isn't part of your group. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing you're going to do when you say things like, oh, come on, I should be allowed to tell X story, but not actually get consent. Because again, the worst case scenario on a date, hey, I want to tell people these stories, and I'm going to tell at least one person because I physically need that. And the date goes, well, then I'm not going to date you, is that you don't date someone. Yeah. That's not a huge deal, especially if for that person, you doing what you need to do to feel like a normal, healthy human being would feel harmful to them. Was not okay. Yeah. You don't want to be in that relationship because you don't want to be doing those harms. And it's better to learn that earlier than later. Early. Yeah. And it's a much easier talk than the sex talk. Like, where are your boundaries about sharing is an easy first date discussion. It might even be good first date fodder. That's not the kind of thing that's, that's a weird, fun, interesting question. So just what kind of story sharing are you okay with later when we get home? You know, it's a lot, lot less daring than a lot of things people talk about on a first date, but I think still interesting. And you mentioned it's relevant to polyamorous relationships and monogamous relationships. Like most of the things that we talk about. Like unless the thing you're talking about is how to introduce your partner to your other partner. is <laughs> going to be relevant for everybody. And even then, a lot of the morals are going to be relevant to everyone. Yeah. Like be above board, be honest, share, get consent, make sure everyone's needs are being met. Those are going to be the same no matter who you are. But yeah, this is a good one for monogamy as well, because for sure... That was always a problem in monogamous relationships when I was a kid, mm -hmm. mine and others, was someone finding out that someone shared something that they didn't think was on the share list and getting really upset and really hurt and feeling very betrayed. And a lot of times the person who had done the sharing didn't even get that they had done it. They were like, wait, why are you upset? I thought that was a normal thing to share. Right. You know, sometimes the person knew, like they knew they shouldn't have shared it and they did it knowing that. And that's one thing. But most of the time they didn't even know. Yeah. When, uh, so I lost my virginity very early on mm -hmm. to my best friend. Mm -hmm. So then he went to school the next day and in class tells a really good friend of his, which, mm -hmm. you know, is the societal norm, right? <laughs> sure. But in turn, when that happened, other people overheard it. Mm. So he did a bad job telling one friend. Yes. So when we started talking about this tonight, that was the first thing that came to mind was, mm -hmm. you know, he thought that he was allowed to tell his guy friend that he got laid. And for sure, he was always going to do that. Right. That was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to him. He was going to tell someone how great his life was now. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> and he did. And sure. backfired. Like I said, it was a horrific experience for me. Sure. But yeah, because we were so young, we didn't talk about that kind of thing. But that could all have been avoided had we been like, okay, so we're going to tell people or are we not going to tell people? Is this? I, I think that still would have ended up the same way because I think you would have agreed to let him tell his best friend and he still would have been bad at telling people. Because what I heard was not that he told someone inappropriate. I heard that he was bad at telling people. Right. That he said that somewhere where other human beings could overhear thinking he was being stealthy. So I, I hate to say it, but I think that was going that way either way. <laughs> Well, he told what 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 had happened was is he told his best friend and then the guy friend repeated it. Ooh, okay, so he had a bad guy friend. Yeah, but it was like repeated it loudly. Like, are you serious? Oh. You had sex with you know, I see. like. <laughs> but it's still, still 
bad at telling people. Right. If you're going to tell someone news that's surprising to the point that their basic ability to control their volume gets overwhelmed, probably should tell have them in a different it. context. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a good friend of yours. Wait till your sleepover. Like, hold on to that shit for 48 hours and be like, I got a surprise. <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> Are you kidding me? He nailed Mandy. He could not hold on to that. <laughs> <laughs> We're now giving advice to like middle schoolers, to high schoolers. I don't know where, or I don't know what really early on qualifies as, but somewhere in that range, I don't think any of them are listening. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, right. So that that was not, and that was interesting because I think you expected him to, I assume you expected him to tell a close friend at least. Right. Not to get overheard and tell everybody, but but to tell someone. I mean, yeah. Or did you think he was going to, it was going to be a secret he would never tell anyone? I mean, you have to, like you said, that's that's something that you assume he's going to tell somebody. Yeah. I told somebody. I just didn't do it in class. You did it well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you did a better job. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, big takeaways. Get consent. Don't assume that there is an actual line in the sand where one thing is acceptable and another thing isn't. It's totally based on what that person thinks. Yes. Yes. And then secondly, sometimes storytelling is just storytelling, but sometimes storytelling is usage. Usage is not covered under consent for sharing. Usage needs to be its own separate consent conversation. If you're going to actually use your stories to accomplish ends like make money, arouse one of your partners, you need to get that as explicit second consent outside of just a discussion. You can't use other people's experiences to benefit or profit you and another partner in any way, period. Yeah, ethically, you absolutely cannot do that without asking. You are clearly being usury if you don't ask that as a separate question. And get really nuanced. Description helps. The more descriptive you can be about the kinds of sharing you mean to engage in, the more the other person will have the ability to really consent, especially if you're getting into ones that nobody would like imagine that you're going to do. Right. Um, especially usage. Especially, yeah, especially usage. usage. Yeah. I think in usage, you can basically go out in the hair and assume you need to in-depth describe each individual use you want to use the story for. Yes. You know, like if you were writing stories about going on dates through OkCupid, you should definitely tell them when you get there. I'm going to write about this. Yeah. You are research. (laughs) Also on a date here, but also you are research. Yeah. You definitely need to, to tell people that sort of at the beginning if you want to be ethical about it. And in summary, if you are in middle school or high school, please start with consent now. Yeah. (laughs) definitely please start with consent now and you know hey if you have a middle school or high school student child of that age wouldn't be horrible to talk to them about consent in those kind of situations yeah it's true you know honestly that's a really good like training wheels consent Mm -hmm. again because it's not an awkward situation like let's talk about like a consent around what appropriate levels of sharing each other's stories are is nice because it's a discussion that you can have that's not at all awkward to have. Right. <laughs> as opposed to other consent discussions and it'll warm you up for that later consent discussion that you also need to have yeah. with your kids. I was really, really proud of one of my children. I'm not going to say which one it was because they would be mortified to know that I was telling the story. But when they had their first kiss... I asked them, did you just kiss them? Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, no, I, I asked them if I could. And I was just like, I'm a good mom. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. my child just just practiced amazing consent. Like, I That would... is the best of the cultural shifts yes. in my experience is that you can ask that kind of stuff now. And my kid was like, what you... You can't just kiss somebody without asking them. They they were just, I asked them first, you know, like I was the dumb one to think that they would have just kissed them or tried to kiss them. Sure. Well, and that goes back to the norming. Yeah. That when I was a kid, you definitely could not have asked and ever gotten a kiss. Right. You would just got laughed at if you asked. Yep. Which is what happened to me a lot. So you just did it. You just tried it, mm-hmm. which is a horrible consent violation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, it was bad for sure. Because I, you know, and it was things like I would get laughed out just for asking people out because, you know, you don't. You ask all of my friends and I are going to see a movie. You want to come, mm-hmm. you know, and after like the third time you've group hung out, then you try and make a move or something. Right. So you don't even ask them out. Like somehow they just find out that they're on a date and they're making out with you and nowhere did they ever get asked about any of those things. Right. And I didn't understand that process and that was made it difficult to date. <laughs> it was, I'm telling <laughs> you, it was one of the proudest parenting moments 
Yeah, that's a great, that's a great thing. When my kid looked at me like, you can't just kiss people. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yay. Yay. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it's only been the last four or five years for me, even, I think, where I have learned that Ken say, hey, I would like to kiss you. Mm-hmm. Would you like to kiss me? And before that, I'd just do what everyone else did, which was had to learn the normative signals for it's time to kiss in my social circles. Right. So so here's a fun tool tip for me uh, on a little cheat for this. If you have not asked for consent to share something, just don't share it and you will get really good at asking in advance really quickly when you get home from the first date where you forgot to ask and cannot tell anyone anything until your second date. And it drives you nuts. Or at least until you <laughs> at least until you text that person and go, "Shit, I forgot to ask." Do you care if I share some of these stories? If you apply that rule, you'll get really good at remembering to ask consent on communication really early yes. on because you won't get to tell anyone anything. And like you said, that'll drive you nuts. Yeah. So that's what I would say. You know, that's what, that's what I would say. That's what I said. That's what I do. But, you know, so absolutely ask. I cannot stress ask enough. Don't assume why are you assuming where other people's boundaries are? We say communicate, communicate, communicate. And and a lot of times when we say communicate, we mean for you to communicate what you need and you to communicate your wants and your expectations. But this is more about asking because it's not sure. the other person's responsibility to say, hey, what we do here, I don't want you to share with anybody. I think it's your responsibility to ask if you can. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's true for most things where consent exists. It's the same thing like you have to ask before you kiss somebody. You have to ask before you engage with someone physically. It's not on them to be like, no, you're not allowed to just kiss me whenever you'd right. like. It's, it's on like you to go, you to is it okay if I kiss now. you? You know? <laughs> And that's definitely going to be our time. For those of you who don't read the Facebook, Audacity crashed on me and deleted the file again. Which is the which is the software that he uses to edit. Right, it's the software that I use to edit. So if you were wondering why you had to wait three, four, God knows how many weeks for that last episode, because this is the second time that's happened, I decided to go learn a new software rather than continue to use a software that has a high chance of deleting the entire file. So that's gonna be even slower than normal editing because I have to learn what I'm doing all over again. So depending on when this episode comes out, I either don't know what the next episode is or it's the episode where we have the Sam from the Survivor Pod dropping by. So one of those two things is happening. Mystery episode, Survivor (laughs) Pod episode. Don't know yet. Surprise episode. See you guys next time. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Tuning in. Do you say that? Tuning in? Tuning in seems right.